Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to I is for Idolatry. I'm going to start with a disclaimer. Seems I do that too often. Um, It's been a crazy week here, and next week promises to be more of the same. And so I'm I'm a day late in getting this. Um, You've noticed, those of you who are regulars, I'm a day late getting this posted. Um, But that's okay. Um, I'm assuming that you're patient enough to wait, and if you're not, there's not much I can do about it. I is for idolatry means we've got what what should be a softball here because hey um, thou shalt have no other gods before me and don't make graven or um, we'll talk about that word don't make graven images I should be clear on those two right I'm gonna have trouble with the other eight but at least the first two I got nailed I'm 20% into this before I get into trouble except that's not how it works as it turns out I think we may have trouble with the first two as well Um, We'll take a look at it. That's what this podcast will be about. The first half, I want to take a look at idolatry in the Old Testament and in the New, but but primarily in the Old Testament because there is a a big problem with idolatry there among Israel. I think we can learn some things by looking at how idolatry and Israel clashed. And then in the second part of this episode, we're going to look at idolatry and and how it plays out in the Christian experience and in the church. I want to run some things by you that may be new thoughts for you and and worth consideration, at least interesting. So let's begin by going to the Ten Commandments. Do you know where to find the Ten Commandments in the Bible? I think we've talked about this before. I'm surprised how many Christians know that the Ten Commandments come from the Mosaic Law, but they don't know where they are. Um, The first occurrence is in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, uh, chapter 20. So take 10 commandments and multiply by 2, the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and you get Exodus chapter 20. The other place you find them is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 5, 5 and 5 is 10. That's just a little um, mnemonic device, memory device that I came up with so that I could remember where they are. It's the same in both places, and so I happen to have my Bible open to Exodus chapter 20. The first is, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, th- that word before doesn't mean in front of me, as in uh, or, or chronological uh, before me. It means beside me. Don't have other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. The second commandment is a little longer. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. In the King James, it's graven image. And I had to look that word up. I I knew it. I knew it from learning the Ten Commandments as a kid. What does graven mean? Graves are where you put dead people. Grave is an old English word for carved. Engraved is our word. So a graven image is carved or or fashioned, or figured, or you made it yourself with your hands. You may have carved it, you may have cast it in bronze or whatever, but it is a manufactured something that you made. You shall, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. One of the things that's worth noting here is that there are two commandments that seem almost synonymous. Don't have any other gods before me, and then don't make any images to worship. But look carefully at them, and you'll see that, in fact, they are different. The first has to do with who you worship, the second with how you worship, and so that it is possible to keep the first commandment and break the second. It is possible to worship the one true God, but to do that by means of an image, an idol, something that you or someone else has made. Is it possible to keep, I'm, I'm sorry, to keep, uh, to keep the second, don't make a graven image, but violate the first, to worship other gods, not using images? And I think the answer is probably yes there too, although that's, that seems like a bigger stretch. To instead of worshiping the God of the Bible, worship some other God, but not to do it through the use of images. The point is, you see that these are different commandments. They, they address different issues, who you worship and then how you do it. And he begins the Ten Commandments by saying, worship only God, the one true God, and don't do it by means of uh, images of any kind. I don't think it's coincidental that these two commandments are at the top of the list. They are the first two of the ten. I think that that's an indication of how absolutely critical they are to our relationship with God and that they are repeated, as we said, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Okay, now let's take a look at the narrative of the Old Testament. And I'm going to begin by reading from Numbers uh, 33, verses 51 and 52. He says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all of their high places. He's telling Moses that very soon, at this point, they are traveling to the promised land from Mount Sinai. They're, they're in their travels. And he's telling them, when you get there, you must destroy all the images and idols of the Canaanites. Of course, God knows what they're going to encounter. And he says, and destroy their high places. Understand what that means. They, they would, they, that is to say, not just Israel, but everybody back then, took the highest places, and that's where they put their altars. That's where they did their worshiping. Why? Because the gods were elsewhere. The gods were above them, and so they would go to the high spot. Also, the high spots were the most valuable. You build your cities up on the hills because they're the most defensible, the most valuable land. Here, it used to be that the most valuable land was on the coast or by a stream or whatever, and, and now with with all the water rising, I'm not sure I ever knew, but back then they would put the, the most valuable land for your cities was up high because it was the most defensible. You also wanted to preserve the land down in the valleys, which was going to be more fertile for your farmland, okay? So when they were building altars, when they were building temples um, and setting up idols, 
they would always put it on the high land. And so he says here, destroy their high places. It is not coincidental that when when they built the temple, when Solomon built the temple, he put it in Jerusalem at the highest spot in Jerusalem. That was normal. So when you get to Canaan, expect to find idolaters and you're to destroy everything associated with that. That's numbers. They're traveling. Now in the book of Deuteronomy, when they're they're parked on the back porch. They are literally just about to enter the land. They've arrived, but not entered yet. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists a bunch of them, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn you away, I'm I'm sorry, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. This is a passage, uh, and others like it, that gives some people trouble because he says, destroy the Canaanites. Other places he says, every man, woman, and child, and then break down their altars, destroy their poles. Uh, they, a lot of the Canaanites worship the god Baal, you know that, huh? And then there, there is the goddess, plural, I'm sorry, uh, feminine, Asherah. The two go together. I don't know if they were married or not, but but Baal is masculine, Asherah is feminine. And Asherah was represented by what are called Asherah poles. And, and frankly, it was a phallic symbol. That was how Asherah was represented. And he says, when you get in there, you've got to wipe out all of the Canaanites, utterly destroy them. Because if you don't, you know what's going to happen. Your young men are going to marry their women, and your women are going to marry their men, and that will introduce idolatry into the nation of Israel. We can't have that. I will, if you do that, I will judge you in the absolute most severe way. It's going to be trouble of all sorts. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominations. They have done for their gods." And so you sin against the Lord your God. You will end up, if you don't utterly destroy them, you will end up with with some sort of cultural mix here where you will be drawn in to worshiping their gods in the way that they worship them, and that will bring trouble on you. This is stated over and over again prior to their entering into the land. Now we turn to Judges chapter 1. We're about two generations after their entrance into the land. And he's setting up 
the author is probably Ezra, we're not sure. He's setting up the situation that is he's going to show us as we read through the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1. So this is kind of a, an overview of the situation in Israel after they've entered the land and been there for about two generations. Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages or Tanak and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. And then he lists several more. When Israel grew, grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, and so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemoth. And he goes through this long list of tribes and says, God told them what to do. He told them to wipe them out. Everything that breathes, destroy them, or you will end up in idolatry alongside of them and with them. Don't do that. You'll worship other gods, and you will worship them with graven images. But when we get to Judges chapter 1, we find out they did not do that. They left them there. The rest of the book of Judges is exactly what you could predict, what God predicted was going to happen. They intermarried, and they ended up in idolatry, and they ended up getting judged by God, and they cried out to God in their distress, and God sent them a judge who delivered them, and they should have learned their lesson, but sure enough, they go right back to it because they did not wipe out the idolatrous uh, Canaanites that, they, that were in the land when they entered. It's worth noting here that the Canaanites were henotheists. I think we've talked about that word before too, but it's been a long time. You know that there are different theistic systems. Atheism is no god. Polytheism is many gods. Monotheism is one god. Henotheism is this interesting little uh, variation of those systems that was, was the rule during New Testament times. And what it says is that each Each people group had their own God. They didn't think that their God was the only one. They thought it was their God. And if you go over to our neighbors, they have a different God. That God's a legit God, but but he's theirs, not ours. There are neighborhood gods is what it comes down to. And in our area, in our neighborhood, he, George, whatever, is the God. That helps explain a lot of narratives in the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at them now. But to illustrate this, there's one in 1 Kings chapter 20 where Israel has gone into battle against the Syrians and uh, the Syrians lost. And the servants of the king of Syria, this is 1 Kings 20, 23, the servants of the king of Syria said to him, the king, their gods are the gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. Let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. You see what it is? This is henotheism. And the Syrian gods were gods of the plain. Syria is a flat land. Israel's gods, the Syrians think, are the gods of the hills. Israel has lots of hills. And our mistake, they say to their king, was fighting them in the hills. We should have fought them on the plain in our neighborhood because our God will be stronger here. And so what we've got in the Old Testament is henotheism uh, that looks like polytheism, but we're going to refine it just a little bit and say that they are neighborhood gods. Israel, nonetheless, is monotheistic. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And 
Don't make any images, either of me or anything else. When you go into Canaan, the land of Canaan that I'm giving you, destroy the Canaanites and all of their images, everything, so that you cannot intermingle with this and end up adopting it as your own. I think it would make an interesting study. Somebody should write a book, or maybe somebody already has, that, that looks at, in, in chronological and a fairly detailed way, Israel's slide into idolatry throughout the Old Testament. It started at Mount Sinai. Huh? You recall that Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets and saw that Aaron had gathered gold that, that all the people had contributed and fashioned a golden calf. What had they done? In the space of a few days, they had slid into a violation of both the first and the second commandment. I've read some commentators that think that they broke the second, that they intended to still worship Yahweh, but to do it with the visualization of the golden calf. I'm not so sure about that. I think uh, the Egyptian influence traveled with them, and uh, they did that. However, as you progress, it gets worse and worse and worse. So as we said, by the time you get into the book of Judges, you find um, idolatry all throughout the book. In fact, it says they uh, once again began worshiping idols, and God oppressed them, and God, then God raises up a judge. The, the best example of this is, the, is Gideon's ministry. You'll recall that. Uh, and, and here again, it's the Baal. It is the god Baal, small g, and Asherah, the, the masculine and, and feminine. Um, later on, as we move through, and the nation splits. It divides into 10 tribes up north, Israel, and two tribes down south, Judah. Up north, they have a series of kings and a series of prophets. The best known, perhaps, of those prophets was a non-writing. I don't mean to say he was illiterate. I mean to say we don't have any books that he wrote. He was non-writing in terms of books of of the Bible. And that is Elijah. You recall the story of, of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. When they each built an altar, and Elijah said, you can go first, and they called on the god Baal to bring down fire and consume their sacrifice, and of course, that didn't happen. They went on all day and and got really worked up, and nothing happened. And then Elijah, at his altar, calls on God to bring down fire, and it happens immediately, consumes the altar and the sacrifice and all the water that uh, Elijah had had, uh, poured on. So there's an example of how quickly and how thoroughly, by the time we get to Elijah, who does he do battle with? He does battle with the prophets of Baal. However, he really does battle with King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. We don't just have the people of Israel in idolatry. It is institutionalized in the king and his wife. Meanwhile, down in the southern kingdom, not exactly contemporaneously, but Manasseh, The king of the south in Jerusalem slides into idolatry. We read in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord." 
in the temple that Solomon built, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. Those are people that they say communicate with the dead. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had set up in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So once again, even in the south, um, we have institutionalized um, through Manasseh. And this goes back and forth. Maybe you, maybe you caught uh, a reference in there to one of his uh, ancestors who had torn down these places. And Manasseh gets in there and he builds them back up again and starts it all over again. Now, we've got to, we've got to move ahead or, or we're never going to get done here. What God does as a result is punish Israel. He told them, we didn't read this, but he told them way back in the beginning that if you get involved in idolatry, I will take this land away from you. I'm giving it to you now. I will take it away from you. And that's exactly what happens. God brought the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, against Jerusalem. And he took away into captivity, essentially, all of Judah. Israel has long since fallen to the wayside. Uh, Jeremiah 22, verses 8 and 9. And many nations will pass by this city, Jerusalem. And every man will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. You see, the reason for the Babylonian captivity was Israel's involvement in idolatry. Ezekiel the prophet uh, was deported in one of the early deportations to Babylon, and he writes back to his compatriots in Jerusalem and says, Get your act together. This is bad news. Multiple places in Ezekiel, it says, this is happening because of your idolatry. Now, the interesting thing is it worked. Seventy years later, God in his sovereignty allows the remnant to return to Jerusalem. They rebuild the city. From that date on, seven, uh, 736 on, Israel has never, ever gone close to idols or worshiping other gods. Give them credit for that, at least. They learned their lesson during the Babylonian uh, captivity. And if you, if you turn to the Gospels, you will see no evidence whatsoever of any violation of the first or second commandment. They got lots of stuff wrong, but they never got this wrong. It cured them of idolatry. Now, I, I want to go back to the Old Testament. We got, we got to return. And I want to look at something interesting, and that is that throughout the Old Testament, idolatry and adultery are so very often compared. And I got to thinking about this week as I was thinking about this this week, as I was prepping for our I is for idolatry. What is it about idolatry uh, that makes adultery such a perfect analogy that God uses it over and over again? And, and you could identify probably several things. But I think the key word here is covenant. 
that passage I just read from, from Jeremiah where the people say, why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? Why has he taken them into captivity? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of, their, uh, of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. Marriage is a covenant. It is a contract. It is a promise. And it is an oath. And, it, and those are considered very, very serious in the Bible. You made an oath to worship God and him only, and to do that without idols. That was something that they did at Sinai. You have broken that covenant. You have broken that oath. And there is, I think, the touch point between idolatry and adultery. You read the book of Hosea. His wife's name is Gomer. That's such an odd name for a woman. But anyhow, the whole book is about uh, his wife, Hosea's wife, Gomer, leaving and abandoning him and breaking the covenant. And, and she just, it's not like she just goes off and marries somebody else. Uh, she is a whore, and that is the Hebrew word that is used. Gomer goes a whoring because she goes after other men, plural. Now, what happens if, if you read the book of Hosea in the end? Hosea loves her and in grace takes her back. And, and she doesn't do that anymore. And from that point on, she is faithful to uh, Hosea. Isn't that a picture of what Israel went through? So why is adultery uh, a, 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 an appropriate analogy for idolatry? I think because it is defined, God's relationship with Israel is defined as a covenant relationship and they break it. Boy, there's so much we could say, but we've come to the end of our allotted time for part one. So now we'll go to part two, and as I promised, we're going to take a look at our contemporary setting, and we're going to see if idolatry is a problem in our society, if it's a problem in the local church, and if it's a problem in our individual lives. Please join me in part two.